Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. A warning before we start. The material in this podcast is very dark. We'll be discussing violent crimes against children. We'll try to be restrained where we can, but to tell this story, we sometimes have to be pretty graphic. Ready? You have a collect call from... John Gacy. Hang up to decline or dial 5 to accept. Jesus Christ, the last two months, I received 579 pieces of mail. I answered 275 letters. Holy jeez. <laughs> That's right. In two months' time. God. You can't blame me for sitting around. Yeah, I don't. <laughs> I gotta go. I gotta get out of here. If there were others involved in these murders and it was covered up, the case should be reopened. I swear to God, if I reverse this case and get out of here, there is going to be hell to pay. That's John Wayne Gacy on the phone from prison in Illinois. Gacy spent 14 years on death row, fighting his death sentence with appeal after appeal, selling his crude clown paintings to those dying for a piece of one of America's most notorious serial killers, and talking to others who wanted to get closer to him. Gacy dined out on the attention, and he used it to his advantage. The friendly contractor was now the friendly killer. Gacy talked to a lot of people on the phone from prison, but one of them went beyond curious pen pal banter. It was a young man from Canada, Randy White. It's an odd coupling. Canadian Randy White, who calls himself an amateur researcher, at the time worked in a printing shop and managed a few bands on the side. But over a four-year period from 1990 to 1994, Randy recorded over 100 hours of his conversations with Gacy, right up until the day before Gacy was executed. No one has heard these tapes before. 
until now. What you're about to hear isn't just idle chit-chat, though. Randy helped Gacy to appeal his death sentence, and in doing so, he uncovered a connection between a serial killer and a nationwide sex trafficker. It's uncomfortable listening at times, but it's a fascinating look into the killer and the man who became his friend, and why this relationship flourished. Now, as you listen, you'll begin to see why serial killers get away with their crimes for so long. They're often the most likable guys in the room. For ID, this is the Clown and the Candyman. I'm Jacqueline Bynan. The first time I heard the name Gacy was December of 1978 when I was at work and read the newspaper. That was a shocker back then. You know, a clown? But back in February of 1989, a friend of mine showed me a copy of the book Buried Dreams, which was about John Wayne Gacy and the murders. And he said, oh, you should write to him, you know, it would be interesting. I said, about what? And he said he has art paintings, you know, he's selling. So after a while, I considered, okay, I'll drop him a line. Let me paint you a picture of Randy. He's humble and unpretentious. He's one of those guys in the crowd you'd never notice. He seems inoffensive. And when you're talking with him, he takes you at face value. He's very easy to talk to. Randy has always been interested in family histories and research, and he has an obsessive attention to detail, the most uncanny memory for dates I've ever seen. He reminds me a bit of one of those monks or one of those scholars in the dusty stacks of an old library. But why on earth would he write to a killer? And not just any killer, John Wayne Gacy, a guy who raped and murdered 33 young men. I was curious, what was he like? Would he ever reply? Would he write back? And what would we talk about, you know? And he wrote back right away. And that's how it all started. Can you remember that moment you saw his letter? And tell me what you were thinking. I said, wow, this is quick. He wrote back. So I opened it up, and it was just a brief letter saying, uh, enclosed, find my art list. You know? So he was interested in selling his paintings and that. So I wrote back again, and it just went back and forth like that. It was basically about his art paintings, about his social life, his, his family life. I had to fill this bio sheet for him. He said, if you don't fill it out, I won't correspond with anybody. And he, he wanted to know, what books do you read? Um, what are your interests, uh, hobbies, uh, um, stuff like that. And um, I had to put my phone number on it. And he just phoned me out of the blue. What did he say? Because you don't expect when you pick up the phone to hear him yeah. saying, hi, Randy. <laughs> well, he said, you happy to hear from me? And I said, well, <laughs> uh, well it's good to hear your voice. Uh, and then we just started talking about everyday things like his painting sales and that's all I could really remember from the first conversation. And I was kind of a little bit in shock. No kidding. Who wouldn't be in shock? Yet Gacy took a liking to Randy and called him often. And it didn't take long for their talks to go beyond paintings. I got a, I got a friend here that, that's coming to visit, and he wants me to move in with him. 
because he's only 24 years old. <laughs> mm-hmm. it's, not, it's not sexual. He likes my artwork. He likes my letters. But he, he's an interesting character. Yeah. Your type? <laughs> what do you mean, my type? <laughs> All he tells me about his girls. He likes, well, he, he likes younger girls. I guess some guys are into that. Yeah. Well, like you're, what, 35 now? Mm-hmm. And I, I am sure that a, a 23, 24-year-old girl appeals to you. Yeah. Yeah, he likes older, he likes younger girls and, and likes to dominate them. He says they, they do anything you want. Mm-hmm. He likes to dominate, you know what I mean? And he's telling me all this shit. I said, you bastard, you. <laughs> you know, but he said if he was ever with a male, he'd want the male to dominate him. Oh. So he's by then? Well, he's only experienced it one time. And he enjoyed he's it? Like, he's like, he's like uh, yeah. So? Yeah, he did. <laughs> and he says, safe sex. He says, you just whack off yourself. <laughs> he says he does it every night. I said, whatever turns you on. Remember we told you how meticulous Randy was? He really took this seriously. And notice how likable Gacy is. Well, I've decided to start taping these conversations just so I could play them back and see what we discussed about in case he asks any questions in his letters or anything. As I learned more about him, then I, he was a smooth talker. He was a, very charming. Um, you know, you wouldn't dream that he was a, a killer. <laughs> and um, he was funny, too. But some of his sex jokes and... <laughs> didn't appeal to me, so he tried to get me to, uh, you know, talk about, you know, sex and that, but I wouldn't. And um, he would uh, actually ask me to go to the sex bookstores and pick up novels for him. And he kept uh, asking for more sex novels and that, so. I I like, uh, you know, I like first-time encounters when women take on young guys and all that stuff. Okay, well, keep that in mind. (laughs) I don't know if you read it before you sent it. I quickly look through it. What's well, that? Uh, you know, send it some off, people yeah. are ashamed to admit that they read that stuff. I, I am not. I don't give a damn. It's fantasy. No, each night my interest may vary in different. I'm not trying to embarrass you or anything. No, yeah. I'm not embarrassing. <laughs> I figured, no, you, I don't know see how you could be embarrassed. Gacy always claimed he wasn't gay. During the surveillance operation, he took great pains to discuss the physical attributes of women with the displaced cops. If anything, he insisted he was bisexual. Yeah. I promise you right now, if I ever get out of here, I'm going to f*** you. Oh, yeah? <laughs> no, no, not literally, physically. You don't have my address, though. My new address, I moved, eh? <laughs> You're going into hiding, huh? <laughs> Who knows, you might like it. <laughs> No, I'm only kidding. No, I got. I, I, see, I, I, I get that from others. I, I never push my views on anybody. I, I, I tease and kid around a lot, you know. Yeah. Which has a tendency to shake up a lot of people. But I sometimes think I never realized that everything I've ever said has always been taken so seriously. But I do know that anybody that I did have sex with, male or female, are alive. Yeah. I didn't have to kill anybody for sex. Listening to Randy and Gacy, I'm reminded of the Displains cops who tailed Gacy nonstop for those 10 days before his arrest back in 1978. They followed him to his job sites, eating and drinking with him in restaurants, bars, bowling alleys, even in his home. They were taken in at times and had to remind themselves 
hey, this guy might be responsible for some bad stuff. Besides sending him sex novels, Randy helped Gacy in other ways. He put an ad in a Canadian newspaper advertising his artwork. Gacy's clown paintings, his landscapes, his satanic imagery sold for upwards of $250 at the time. Today, some of them fetch over $12,000. And Gacy used the money to help pay for his legal bills, his cigars, his typewriter ribbons, and his phone calls. Hey, can I take my call from John Gacy when you pay for the call? Yes, I will. Why would you do that? Because <laughs> you're a good friend. <laughs> How you doing, John? Pretty good, you? Oh, okay. Hey, I play those lottery numbers for you. Yeah. 9, 23, and, and 33, isn't it? Yeah, what's 9, 23, and 33? 9 is my favorite number. 23 happens to be for the Cubs. And 33 happens to be uh, the case. He was very, very concerned about me spending money. He would help me uh, by sending me a check to help pay for some of the long-distance phone calls. What's the phone bill been with me? About 1905. <laughs> I, I, I will send you another check. Oh, uh, don't worry about it, John. Look, I'll worry about the checks. I'll make you pay it when I get out. <laughs> okay. Just keep your mouth warm. <laughs> it's uncomfortable listening to conversations like this, but not surprising for a sexual sadist sitting on death row. Somehow Randy manages to bluff his way through because now he was starting to research the case and the victims on his own. So I always try to keep on his good side because I wanted to find out from him as much as I could. So I would have to keep a good relationship with Gacy. And then Gacy found out that I wasn't looking into the victims and he already compiled a, a little book about the victims based on his the trial transcripts. So he shared what he wrote about the victims uh, to add to my research. And that's when things went from friendly banter to Randy helping Gacy investigate the case. Remember, Gacy wanted off death row badly. And the only way to do that was to provide new evidence that would overturn his original conviction. As for Randy, he was fascinated. He was always thinking about writing a book. So both had their motives. Through our correspondence, eventually he said, you know, uh, all the garbage you read about me is, uh, they're all trash, you know, like all the books you read about me is all trash, garbage. I knew that he, he killed, but I thought there was more to this case. Did he ever admit to you that he had done those crimes, that he had killed those boys? Well, he admitted he killed the first one, Tim McCoy. But Gacy didn't really open up totally with me about anything. Tim McCoy was the first victim Gacy picked up in 1972 at the bus station in Chicago. McCoy stayed the night and in the morning came into the bedroom holding a knife. Gacy flipped, grabbed the knife and stabbed the 17-year-old. Then Gacy went into the kitchen and realized McCoy had just been making breakfast for the two of them. Gacy threw his body in the basement and then left for work. He called it self-defense, and um, he didn't want to call the cops because of his. He was just recently paroled from the 1968 um, incident, so 
he wouldn't he he didn't believe the cops would believe him so he just buried him in the crawl space and that's what he told me um of course i didn't buy that notice the way gacy talks about the victims in the crimes so cold no remorse no concern the 28 bodies in his basement were an inconvenience nothing to do with him as if his confession to his lawyers and to the Displains police back in 1978 never happened. And he had an answer for everything. There are only five victims that I know anything about. Beast Bukovic got sick. McCoy and... Zick. Uh, Zick. Yeah, the, the information that I had given on, on those five, well, well uh, Bukovic, uh, God, Zick both had worked for me. There's only one that I can't account for. And who's that? The first one. Uh, Tim, yeah. Right, uh, but all the rest of them can be accounted for to, to, to different people. The official statement of facts, John Gacy, he stands convicted of 33 murders, 24 of the victims have been identified, 9 remain unidentified. I'm still a little confused with that, you know, because uh, he's... 28th found, like he was the 28th found, he was found on the, the uh, driveway part, they said, eh? Okay, unidentified body number 28 was killed by strangulation, according to Casey Stevens. Placed the body head down in bedroom closet for storage before bury. Notice the blood and other fluids from the victim's mouth on the carpet. Laboratory test stains on the carpet confirmed that it's human blood, but does tell you what type, yeah. who the hell's blood it was, or if it was even number 28's body. That's body number 20, unidentified body number 28. I started discovering discrepancies in some of the stories. For example, uh, when they recovered the remains of body 14 and the clothing that was found on it, it was different from the police bulletin that I received from Gacy and also uh, other victims such as Randy Reffitt, uh, body number seven, and Sam Dodd Stapleton, body number six. They were f recovered from the uh, same grave in the crawl space. Uh, however, in the police reports for, I believe, uh, Samuel Dodd Stapleton, it varies from one day to another when he went missing. So if they went missing together, like they, they were claimed to be, which is May 14, 1976, then why do the police report saying different dates? Um, and plus, Randy Riffitt in the police reports were, was found to have been seen weeks later after he was reported missing. I thought there was more to this case. Maybe he wasn't involved in all these murders or didn't kill all these people. Maybe, you know, others could have been involved with them or did it on their own. In the beginning, you know, when I first heard about your case, I thought, you know, oh yeah, this guy is really, you know, guilty as all hell. But when I started going into the case, I started finding a lot of things that didn't make sense, you know? If I was as guilty as everybody wants you to believe, then I would have been executed. Yeah. A long time ago. At last, the killer clown had found someone who might be able to get him off death row.
A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. What I'm trying to do is uh, gather up a lot of information on the victims. The object of what we're trying to do is get a new trial. Get a new trial, then we can open up the whole new ball game. Yeah. Because if I didn't kill them, somebody else did. And if they're not going to go after the people that did, then don't hold me for their crimes. It's impossible to tell if Gacy really believed what he was telling Randy. Notice the words he used, if I didn't kill them. A very calculated statement. I think Gacy was aware he wasn't ever going to get out of prison, but he wanted off death row. The best way to do that is to suggest others were involved, and the best candidates for Gacy were the young employees who worked for him. You see, if I went back to trial, I could establish these guys were in and out of that house all the time when John wasn't there. See, I can put them at the house. I mean, I was awful generous with people. Same thing with letting them use the house when I was out of town. No, you know, instead of going to a hotel, bring your girlfriend here. Just as long as you respected the house. But I don't know what the hell they were doing. Where I found clothing in the house that I never knew who the hell it belonged to. You'll remember we mentioned two of Gacy's employees in the last episode, Michael Rossi and David Cram, the young men who eventually told the police about digging trenches in Gacy's crawl space. The two even testified at his trial. Now, there was never any proof that Michael Rossi or David Cram had been involved in the murders, 
But there was another employee that Gacy and Randy found especially interesting. Talk about a coincidence. It was the young man we talked about in Episode 5, Philip Paskey, the buddy and partner of the man who ran the nationwide sex trafficking ring out of Chicago, John David Norman. Also, I need more information on Philip Paskey, who was also involved in some other things, with another guy who was into making porno snuff films of boys. That would be the area that I wanted you to concentrate on. See, he was the enforcer for John Norman. Yeah. yeah. What you really want to know is the background on Norman, where he was born, all of his aliases. So if we could tie them in with any of the victims linked to you, then that's reasonable doubt that you may have not killed them, right? Yes. I had that meeting with the, the FBI people. You did? Great. And uh, you got a paper and pencil? Sure. Let me grab one. All right. Okay. John David Norman, 10-17-27, date of birth. Wow. He was sentenced, sentenced in 1990 to two to five years. Deviant sexual battery. Okay. He's been arrested 19 times. 19 times. According to the detective, and 16 are for sexual, sexually related uh, crimes. Mm-hmm. Out of the 19 arrests. With this whole long list of all the criminal acts he's done, he's been getting out all the time. You know, like lock him up, lock him up for good. <laughs> We want to know where he is in 1976, 77, 78. He was in Chicago with Pansky. Yeah. So, Pansky was arrested recently on suspicion of murder involving um, the death of a young man who was or did testify against Norman. You think Pansky was somehow involved? I don't know enough about uh, Paskey, because Paskey only worked for me, you know, in, yeah. in that short interim period. And the thing of it is, is that uh, in all likelihood, he was real close buddies with Cram, because Cram also told me that uh, had I wanted other male friends, that uh, Paskey could supply me with them. Then again, you have Paskey and Cram both saying that. Uh, They've killed people before. Well, this is fascinating now. Finally, we're getting somewhere. Like I say, mainly, what I'm trying to do is establish some kind of pattern and link with these victims. Mm-hmm. And see if I can, how many of them I can link up with Ram and Paskey. The theory that I come down with is, when you look at my case, the bodies escalated from 1977 on. Mm-hmm. Graham came to work for me on, what, 76? August. Is it August 76? Yeah, somewhere in there. Okay, the body count really escalates. Then he brings in Paskey, and so they both had a key. And I'm figuring that they were using the house as a dumping ground. We learned something interesting from one of our sources. David Cram's father and Philip Paskey were burglars together in Chicago. That's how Paskey knew David Cram, and that's how he got the job with Gacy. John Gacy said to me that uh, he knows that Philip Paskey worked for him in 1977. We have records showing that he did, in fact, work for Gacy in September 78. Paskey uh, was listed on a list of keys that Gacy had 
given to uh, various employees and friends, his mother, for access to his house. Why would Phil Paskey be listed on this list? Keys to the house, to the vehicles, you know, when Gacy was out of town. They could come and go as they please. What you're hearing is the start of how Randy became the expert on John Norman and his operation. Randy was very resourceful. He spent a lot of time digging up newspaper stories, accessing court records, trying to connect Paskey to Norman's Boys for Rent business in the Chicago area. Norman started running his newsletters right from Cook County Jail. So I have one of them, the first one. And he mentioned Phil Paskey on it as his, his right-hand man in his new uh, project, which was what's called now called Delta Project. Remember from Episode 5, The Delta Project, the newsletter that reporter Michael Sneed received in the mail that led to exposing Norman as the kingpin of a nationwide sex trafficking ring headquartered in Chicago. Philip Paskey helped Norman produce that newsletter. Randy went so far as to painstakingly track some of the last known location of Gacy's victims to the same area where Norman and Paskey were operating in Chicago once they got out of prison in 1976. They were residing on 707 West Wrightwood, and which was a smack center in a gay male hustling area of Chicago. And that's where some of the victims were last seen too, attributed to Gacy. So when you made this connection, are you going ding, ding, ding? Like, what are you thinking? Like, you must have gone, wow, this is kind of weird. Yes, when I found out where Norman was living and how close he was to this intersection where some of the victims were last seen and his connection with Paskey and Paskey's connection with Gacy, it started, you know, setting off bells in my head. And uh, I said, there's more to this story than what the public really knows. You ask the average person what they think of Gacy, if they know the case, they would say, oh, didn't he kill all those boys? And that, was, that would be it. <laughs> you know, they wouldn't know about Cram and Paskey and Norman, you know. It is quite possible that Paskey had Gacy and Norman hooked up together. That is my belief to this day. Okay, so Norman and Paskey were in the same area where Gacy cruised for young men. But were they killers? Randy thinks they were. At least two of the victims that I know of and, and who were involved with them ended up dead, murdered. <laughs> and that was Kenny Hellstrom, who was stabbed to death on January 19, 1977 in Homewood. You'll recall Kenny Hellstrom was the kid that spilled the beans to Detective Frank Flannery in Homewood, Illinois, about how Norman was molesting him and his friends back in 1973. Remember, that was only months after Norman fled Dallas and the charges there. Kenny Hellstrom became a key witness against Norman in court. Here's Randy telling Gacy about it. He had a, a trial in uh, December 76, and that, that boy, Kenny Hellstrom, yeah. he testified against him. And... Um, as a result, Norman was sentenced to five years at Pontiac. And the next month, the boy was found murdered. Did you know uh, about it or had, had it done? Yeah. 
which comes back to our other buddy, <laughs> Phil. Yeah. Because he met him in Cook County, huh? in Cook County Jail. They talked to Norman. He, he was in prison, so he couldn't have murdered the kid. Well, that's true, yes. But Paskey was not in prison. He was out on parole and was living in Chicago. But because Halstrom had Norman put away in prison, Paskey may have had a violent streak to that, that he took revenge. I won't doubt that for a moment, really. John Norman was arrested by Chicago police in August of 1978, and that's what really killed the Delta Project. And then, surprise, surprise, Paskey ends up working for Gacy just a few weeks later. Paskey's talking about that murder that he committed. I said, no, you got to remember, he was working for me, which was about six months after Hellstrom's killing, and he had, had said that he was involved in the killing. He, he, yeah. he told he you that? Mind. Did Paskey tell you that he was yeah. involved in the murder? Not that murder, but he had told me. He, David Cram, when David Cram brought him around, he says, he's cool. He killed somebody. And the other one was uh, Michael Salcedo. He was 17. He was involved with Norman in June of 78. And he was stabbed to death, along with his brother and a friend, in February 25th. 1979. Like Kenny Hellstrom, Michael Salcedo was a witness against Norman in the Chicago bus that killed the Delta Project. But the young man was murdered in 1979 before he could testify. Now all of this sounds pretty circumstantial, right? But the Chicago Tribune reported in February of 1979 that the police were looking at John Norman and Philip Paskey in connection to these murders. So you can see why Randy and Gacy were asking, had Paskey and Norman killed boys before? So these two boys linked to Norman ended up both being stabbed to death. And that's pretty sad. And then you have to wonder how many other victims were out there who were possibly killed, who were involved with Norman. Were they using Gacy's crawl space with Gacy's knowledge or without? as a dumping ground for some of the kids who wouldn't work out with Norman's operation. So Randy had to prove that some of the kids in Gacy's basement knew Paskey and Norman. And he went right to the source. He wrote to John David Norman. When I took up this case, I know there's going to be you know, people out there who are just going to think this guy's weird. Uh, how could you be following this serial killer story, you know? Oh, why are you one too? Or are you going to be one too? Or do you like doing that? Or No, I'm, I'm looking at it as a, from an investigative research point of view. So just a month before Gacy was executed, I wrote to uh, Norman. This is February of 1994. When I first wrote to him my letter, I just said, oh, I found a, a copy of your newsletter. But he wrote back and just blabbing on, right? To me, he sounded like really smart, um, precise, and just a motor mouth. <laughs> I thought he would be like really guarded. Like, who are you? You know, 
Are you working for the police? Wasn't like that at all. And he told me about Paskey. So right away, you know, like, well, okay, there's that connection there for sure. Read me the first, what, is, what, does, what does it say, the first couple sentences? Uh, he says, Dear Randy, good Lord, how fantastic that a newsletter from 1975 should produce a response in 1994. Yes, by all means, let's correspond. Yes, the Delta Project is mine. It's the Operation Phil Paskey and I ran during the months I was out on bail in 76. Here's another letter from John Norman. I got Phil a job working with me and the two of us grew steadily closer. In the course of the next four years, we generally shared everything, working together and sometimes living together as well. I've got to stop here because I want to take you back to episode one of this podcast and Dean Coral the Candyman and the Houston mass murders in 1973 and all those 28 boys who were tortured, murdered, and then buried in Coral's rented boat shed. When I started this investigation, I wondered, could there be a connection between John Norman, who was running his boys for rent scheme in Dallas at the time, to Coral? And remember Coral's young accomplices like Elmer Wayne Henley, the teenager who lured boys to Coral's place and then eventually killed Coral to save his own skin. Well, Henley told the police that Coral belonged to an organization out of Dallas that bought and sold boys. I wanted to know if that was John Norman's operation. And guess what? So did Randy. And Randy asked Norman straight out. And here's a letter dated April 6, 1994, page one. I quote, the whole business about a possible link to Coral and those people in Houston was a flight of fancy invented to try to make a big story out of my arrest. What scared the hell out of everyone, I think, was my mailing list. According to rumor, it included the numbers of a number of noted judges, legislators, and other officials. It may well have, but if so, it was without my being aware of it. I wouldn't be surprised who will be on this list. <laughs> Uh, if they could be found of the file cards, was some of Dean Coral of the Houston murders, were some of the boys who were murdered on these lists, were some of Gacy victims' names on these lists as well, from Chicago. And it would be very interesting if Gacy's name was on Norman's list, you know. Like so many others before, reporters, lawyers, Randy, our efforts to find Norman's index cards failed as well. Were they lost or were they deep-sixed? Perhaps we'll never know. Gacy said, never said nothing about Norman, but however, in the FBI interview of May uh, 1992, Robert Ressler, former FBI agent, asked Gacy, have you ever met John Norman? And Gacy's reply, which to me it was kind of strange, but his reply was, uh, I have yet to see a current picture of Norman, so I have to say no, which is kind of strange for an answer because if you know somebody or don't know somebody, you would say, no, I don't know that person. So that kind of told me in a way that it's Norman and Gacy knew each other. In April of 1994, just a month before Gacy's execution date of May 10th, 
Gacy's lawyers flew Randy to Chicago. It was a Hail Mary move to avert the death penalty. They stuck Randy in a tiny motel room and had him sift through boxes and boxes of PDM records, receipts, ledgers, return checks, hotel bills, everything. Gacy said, you'd know more about the victims from the dates they went missing. If you could find receipts that showed that I was out of town. And Gacy was out of town, according to some of his travel receipts, he was out of town on at least four occasions when the victims went missing. For example, Robert Gilroy was supposed to board a bus with his friends to go to the horseback uh, riding uh, event. And he never showed that day. And he never showed up in Maryland when he was supposed to attend this uh, class. Well, Gacy was in Pennsylvania on a job site from the 12th to the 16th when Robert Gilroy went missing. They said, well, Gacy came back on the 16th. But no, I found receipts that show that Gacy went to uh, New Jersey and didn't get back to Chicago until September 20th of 1977. So who put Robert Gilroy in that grave? So if Gacy was in town to do the murders, who did? People would say, well, Gacy's always lying, you know, he's always exaggerating. So do we just discount everything he says? Or do we believe things only that suits our own purposes? You know? Everybody, including Gacy, knew it was a long shot and he was running out of time. If and when I get close to dying, you're going to have to make a trip down here because there are some things that I want you to have nobody else's to get. And no, I'm not interested in dying, but <laughs> I see I'm a practical person and I think practically. Yeah. Well, it's going to be quite a few years anyways down the road. <laughs> Nobody knows. Yeah. Okay, John. I could die at any time, but there, there are some stuff here that I don't need anymore. See, and at least if I know if I send it up to you or you picked it up, that I'd know it'd be safe there. Like one, I was thinking of giving you all the trial transcripts. Dan, wow. I got a few other things that are personal items that I wanted you to have rather than anybody else. I regard you as family oh. to me. Well, thank you, John. Gacy's appeal failed. And to be honest, I understand why they didn't believe he was out of town when some of the murders occurred. During our investigation, we noticed that dates when young men were reported missing were notoriously vague back then. Many of these boys didn't live at home, and some were hustlers. Remember... No cell phones, no social media in the 70s. These guys weren't texting their friends, and so fewer people to notice they were gone. So you talked to him, did, was it the day before he was executed? The day before he was executed, uh, he, was still, he was still at Menard, and they flew him down by helicopter to Stateville to be executed. So just before he left Menard, I talked to him on the phone. Gacy sounded the same, and uh, even on the last conversation, his voice was still the same. Yeah. They're waiting on a jet, jet copter. I asked them about uh, if they were going to serve peanuts on the fire. <laughs> but, um, we'll be talking to you. Yeah, well, I hope so. <laughs> I'm sure you got a pretty good, a couple of good attorneys here. <laughs> okay, um, whatever happens, like, you know, um, if it comes to worse, John, like, um, I just want to say, you know, thank you very much for, you know, I'm, I'm not trying to sound, you know, ghoulish. 
you know, I don't know when I get, if I'll be able to talk to you tomorrow. You're, you've been a wonderful friend to me, and, and I appreciate all you've done for me. Okay, John. Um, thank you very much, and talk to you again. Yeah, take care. Okay. When they executed him, I hate to see anybody executed, but I didn't shed a tear. Sad to say, like, but I had no, because of crimes, you know. It was hard to have any feeling for somebody like that. I mean, I felt sorry for his sister. I know she loved her brother. John Wayne Gacy was 36 when he was arrested. He was 52 when he was executed. As for Randy White, well, he kept writing to pedophile John Norman until about a year later. Norman was about to get out of prison and start up his sex trafficking business all over again. And he had some big, big plans for Randy White. He was going to move down to San Diego. He wanted me to come down and be his right-hand man, like he did for Philip Paskey. I told Norman that I was packing up, moving out to the West Coast, and that I may come down, but I'm not sure. And I told him I closed my post office box number, and that was it, and that's the last I heard. I believe that he was very psychotic. I, I termed him as probably America's worst pedophile. He has a history that goes back for sex crimes way back to 1954, I believe, if not earlier, that we know of. I think he was proud of what he'd done. Like, if he wasn't, he would have stopped it a long time ago. But he continued doing it. I think he would have done it if there was a police officer standing right in front of him. And you got to wonder how many victims are out there. These kids who went through all these ordeals and um, he continued doing it. And right up to a few years before his death when he was arrested and put in the state mental hospital where he died on May the 22nd, 2011. The big question for me, I wanted to know if Randy ever asked Norman about Gacy. Um, no, I didn't. I uh, asked Norman when I was in touch with him between 1994 and 95 whether he was involved with Gacy because I didn't want to scare him off. It's too bad. I, you know, Norman never mentioned uh, Gacy at all. Randy White to this day still believes that Gacy had accomplices who have never been brought to justice. There's a saying, all sins cast long shadows. Six of John Wayne Gacy's victims remain unidentified, and time is running out for one Chicago cop to give them back their names. I don't want to bring attention to the killer. This isn't about him. This is about victims of murder, families, answers. Not knowing the fate of your missing loved one is worse than hearing what happened. That's coming up in episode eight. The dust never settles. The Clown and the Candyman, an original podcast from ID and Cineflix Media. 
The show is written and hosted by me, Jacqueline Bynan. The series producer is Tara Hughes. Gino Anderson is our editor, with mixing by VO2 in Toronto. The executive producer for ID is Tim Bainey. And special thanks for this episode to Randy White. <laughs>